Blog Talk Radio. Session of interviews with the most relevant authors in human history. They are the most relevant because they have each written books about the most relevant occurrence in human history, the ongoing destruction of our planet. Our collective neglect, our mass ignorance, our total failure to stop ourselves from causing this destruction is going to have profound impacts upon our children and grandchildren. I'm not saying it may have an impact. I'm saying it's already too late. And all those youngsters who will grow into adulthood in the next 10 to 30 years will never be able to enjoy the kind of world that we in the older generations have enjoyed. It's already too late. Our actions and our irresponsible inactions are now already taking their toll. Both flora and fauna are becoming extinct. Air and water pollution are rampant. All of us, all of us now have microplastics in our bodies. If we've not them, we breathe them every day now. The rainforests have all but disappeared. The oceans are changing so rapidly we can't even keep track. You know about the fires and the floods and the droughts, and this year they will be worse than last, even more so next year. Welcome to the Anthropocene era. That means that everything that's going on now on the globe is no longer natural change as has occurred for millions of years. All the changes we are seeing, all the disasters, it is now all caused by human activity. Humans are killing the flora and the fauna. Humans have caused the increasing floods and fires and increasingly more terrible weather patterns. It's not that we've had no warning. Fifty-three years ago, Paul Ehrlich wrote a book that caused a stir at the time. It was called The Population Bomb. He told us then that we must stop increasing human numbers that the vast and quick expansion of humans on the planet had begun to threaten not only our own welfare, but that of nature itself. In a little over a hundred years, human numbers had skyrocketed from one billion to three billion people across the earth in 1968, a shocking growth rate. No way the planet's resources could keep pace with such growth. The waste we were producing alone could not be sustained. Just imagine the pollution and depletion of resources to come. Professor Ehrlich, I appreciate you being here to weigh in on that now half-a-century-old warning to us. Since you warned us then that three billion was too many people, we have added another five billion humans to the planet, essentially in 50 years. There are now eight billion people, and there's no slowdown in sight. I am sorry to admit I am a pessimist regarding the future. How about you? Do you see any threads of hope? Uh, I see tiny threads of hope. But we're, if we were discussing this 10 years ago, uh, or maybe 20, I would have said we've started moving in the right direction, and uh, 
maybe, maybe, maybe we can avoid a collapse of civilization. I was uh, pessimistic about whether we would do it, but I was optimistic about whether it was possible if we did the right things to do it. Now I'm afraid I'm pessimistic on both. I'm pessimistic that we won't do it, uh, and I'm pessimistic even if we did make all the right moves, uh, whether we could avoid a collapse. And I share that view with uh, a large group of colleagues. This isn't a minority view. The scientific community has been warning about this in specific terms since the 1990s. I think it was around 1992 there was the World Scientist Warning to Humanity, signed by many Nobel laureates and so on, saying if we didn't stop expansion of the human enterprise, uh, we were going to suffer severely. Uh, essentially, all the academies of science uh, in the world said that population growth is much too serious and has to be stopped. Uh, but nobody paid attention. When those things came out, uh, the New York Times didn't even cover them. So, uh, yeah, I'm afraid I'm pessimistic. Uh, the only little threads of hope I see are some of the young people uh, beginning to realize that we're screwing over the world we're passing to them and uh, talking about taking action and trying to take action. And, uh, you know, our, our societies can change very, very rapidly under some circumstances, but I don't see that even beginning at the moment. Yeah, what what some of the changes that we have have begun are are inexorable. Well, they, they, yeah, we're already uh, facing uh, almost certainly at least two degrees Celsius increase uh, in uh, in the average temperature of the Earth, which we're seeing, and such things, for example, as the uh, freezing out of Texas. Uh, Unfortunately, that state has a moron for a governor and more morons in high positions. Uh, the cause of the recent freeze was the warming of the planet, because what happens what happens is the uh, polar regions are warming more rapidly than the than the equatorial regions. So the gradient in temperature between the equator and the North Pole is weaker than it used to be, and so the it has weakened the circumpolar circulation uh, that normally keeps really cold air up north. And when you weaken that circulation, you get bulges coming down. And although the air from the Arctic is slightly warmer than it used to be, it's still a lot colder than Texas is used to. And that sort of thing, the fires in Siberia, Australia, western United States, and so on, are all signs that already uh, the climate situation is deteriorating, and that's just one of about ten existential threats to civilization, all of which are running downhill faster and faster, and all of which are basically being ignored by human society. And and all of which, in, in my estimation, and sometimes I feel like a lone wolf uh, as I talk to my friends and acquaintances, no one seems to associate directly uh, overpopulation with all of this. Well, th this is insane, and it's continuing, although there is a slight improvement. Uh, some people are beginning to understand. Uh, for example, uh, there was a, just a year or so ago a scientific paper doing the calculations and pointing out 
that in a rich country like the United States, having one fewer child reduced the emission of greenhouse gases, which is the uh, thing causing the, the uh, climate problems, that having one fewer child uh, did more to reduce those emissions than stopping driving 23 times. That is, you can do more by restraining your reproduction than you can by persuading 23 of your friends uh, to give up their cars, uh, which is a small project by, by itself, as you can probably figure out. <laughs> well, we, we uh, I'm, I'm going to be touching upon your your 53-year-old book here on uh, occasionally in, in a few uh, matters, and and one of them you just you just brought up there was there was a second. By the way, your 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 book is it's it's almost scary because so many as uh, I I read so many parts of it and and think you know that 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 could have been written yesterday. And and yet here we are so much later and, and nothing has happened. But one of the things that at the, at the end of your book, uh, you you called it "What can I do?" and and you said that your standard answer to people when they ask what you can do was you say set an example. Don't have more than two children. What do you say now? I would say set an example. Uh, have at most one child, and it's perfectly good uh, to. Uh, uh, go childless. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a, uh, a wonderful activist, Leilani Munter, uh, who is a beautiful woman who is a champion race car driver uh, and who uh, has decided and has broadcast the fact that uh, she does she does not want to uh, add to the problems of the world by having an additional child. She has no children. She and her husband have decided not to have any children. And, of course, when you have a famous race car driver making a statement like that, it helps make people realize that going childless is not necessarily awful. Uh, Ann and I said, uh, stop at two. Uh, we had one. Uh, nowadays, if we were doing it again, we might have zero. Uh, say, stop at one, but have zero. Uh, although I must say I uh, am very fond of my my daughter, who's a collaborator in a lot of the research, she has a doctorate in economics and understands that uh, the average economist is a daydream believer because, uh, of course, our economic system is one of the main things that's driving us down the drain. It's a moving paper fantasy. Exactly. Yeah. You're, the the average economist, if you, if you want to know, if you want to have a clue whether or not anything is going to change in the right direction big time. It's when you get politicians starting to say, we had a terrible year last year. We grew by one-tenth of one percent when we had been hoping to shrink by one percent. In other words, uh, the idea that you can grow forever on a finite planet uh, is, as, as an, econ an economist actually said uh, 50 or 60 years ago, anybody who thinks that you can... Uh, continue growth on a finite planet is either a madman or an economist, and we have lots of both. Yeah, that 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 has been troubling to me for so so long because not being an economist, it it, it just seems like common sense. I've got two direct quotes out of your book that are, relate to this. Uh, one of them is uh, the idea of an ever expanding economy fueled by population growth 
seems tightly entrenched in the minds of businessmen. It still is. Of course, yeah. uh, you know, I, I will not testify that everything that uh, Ann and I wrote 53 years ago is correct, because in any area of science you expect change. But an interesting thing is, for example, we were beat up on for saying the battle to feed all of humanity is over uh, at the uh, beginning of the book. And, of course, uh, we have yet since then to feed all of humanity. You know, we, we have uh, something on the order of 700 million people who are basically starving, another 2 billion uh, who are micronutrient malnourished. Uh, people in Palo Alto, California are going hungry, uh, and yet uh, we are criticized for that. Uh, and uh, also, of course, we've written another 15 or 20 books dealing with these issues since then, and people will take a quote from the population bomb and say, well, that didn't exactly work out, even though uh, in the population bomb we said uh, in very much before we wrote little predictions about the future, saying none of these will come true. They're just something for you to think about. So uh, the, the whole population situation is getting continuously worse. The absolute growth now is somewhat larger than it was uh, in 1968. The, uh, in 1968, uh, the, uh, the percent growth was higher, but the percent was applied to a much smaller population. So uh, we're still growing in the vicinity of 80 million people a year. Uh, and uh, guess what? That means you've got to have uh, more houses, more roads, more food, etc. every year. And we're not keeping up in many cases. And you can look and see that the previously uh, so-called underdeveloped countries or the poor countries the ones that have done best uh, in giving well-being to their citizens are the ones that have restrained their population growth. Uh, there's a, a strong connection between the level of well-being of people in the country and the size and rate of growth of their population. And the, the smaller the size and the lower the rate of growth, the better off the people are, which makes intuitive sense, of course, because if you have a finite pie, the more people eating it, the less, the smaller each slice is. Uh, you, you, you said in your book, uh, and here's something that also has not happened. You said that we need a Bureau of Population and Environment to determine the optimum population size for the USA. That certainly yeah. hasn't happened. But I know oh, it I hasn't that happened, he... and it's part of the uh, general insanity, particularly connected uh, with population growth, because uh, if you think about it, one of the reasons we put together governments is to do the things we can't do individually. And certainly then one of the, the duties of government uh, is to see to it that you don't uh, get beyond your resources, that the people in your society can live happy, healthy lives, their children can look forward to uh, living as well as the parents did, and so on. And so one of the factors that should be uh, considered by government is the size of the population, the level of uh, consumption, the impact of the consumption 
on the uh, environment which the population utterly depends upon, uh, and we don't have any system for doing that. And one of the, the true, almost amusing things is that they say, after all, uh, reproduction is so private uh, that the government simply cannot intervene in any way uh, to change reproductive behavior. That's in a country which uh, has had lots of laws about who you can have sex with, what even what positions you can have sex with, who you can marry, uh, what age you can marry, and so on and so forth. In other words, the government uh, intrudes into sexual behavior uh, in many, many ways. Uh, right now, uh, the Republican thugs are trying to restrict women's rights to have abortions in, in most states, uh, and yet they yak on about how important it is that the government not interfere uh, in any way with reproductive behavior uh, any more than, uh, I, I guess, you know, you shouldn't, you can have your freedom taken away from the gov by the government all the time with, like, uh, I'm forcing you to wear face masks, forcing me not to drive 100 miles an hour in school zones. In other words, uh, the, the whole idea about the role of government and what government should be paying attention to in our society is particularly nuts. Uh, having an interview after two more mass murders tells you where the government is not intruding where it should be intruding. Now, the, those those mass murders, uh, the, you, you talk about Friedman's rats and 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 overpopulation studies in, among rats and things like that, and there and and increased uh, aberrant behavior and murders and things like that. Uh, it's, that's what's going on in the human population. Is it not simply by overpopulation? Too many people. That's that's complicated because the rat. The rat experiments weren't quite done right, but there seems to be little question that a lot of social issues uh, are uh, tied tightly to the population situation. For example, uh, really bad uh, agricultural conditions south of the United States uh, is driving uh, a lot of uh, people towards the United States uh, and that has opened up all kinds of opportunities for criminal gangs uh, to uh, uh, cheat and rob the migrants uh, for uh, criminals in the United States like uh, 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 Senator Cruz and others to make political hay uh, out of a, a desperate situation where uh, we're not even discussing the ethics of it. So, uh, yes, population size is... Uh, one of the factors in uh, the social uh, difficulties we're seeing now, which are trivial and going to be more trivial compared to what's coming, uh, migration alone, based on environmental deterioration and particularly uh, clean changing climate, is going to be one of the major national and international issues with lots of really bad behavior tied tied to it. The uh, the Trump administration illustrated exactly how uh, a criminal government uh, can push all of society and possibly even our species uh, towards the brink of extinction. 
when when you said that we needed a, uh, a bureau of population and environment, I was impressed that even in 1968 you linked population and environment. Well, the the original title of the population bomb, which we submitted to the publishers, was Population Resources Environment, and we later wrote a book by that title. But the publisher, um, in this case, wisely said, no, a, a more uh, a trickier title like the population bomb will get the word out further. Uh, it also, and I'm totally ashamed about this, um, I, we sent the book, or we said the book originally was by Paul and Ann Ehrlich, and they said, no, we just need a single author because multi-authored books don't sell as well. Uh, if that were today, of course, I would have the sense and power to say, no, we're going to have the, the authorship the way I say. But in those days, Ann and I were both anxious to get the word out, and we decided to go along with that. But uh, she has been a full partner and in some ways the dominant partner in dealing with population issues. Yeah, I noticed that uh, you've written several subsequent books uh, together. Uh, I, I, I do want to stay, though, with the population bomb itself, because having just read it uh, again, it's so long ago that I read it earlier, uh, frankly, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm astounded. When I reached out to try and, and find if you were still around, I was astounded <laughs> to find you that you were. still have the paperback and, edition? Uh, yeah, yeah. If, if and, it's the uh, first edition or close to it, if you look at the cover, you don't have it with you at the moment. No. Oh, look at the cover and look at the little thing in the corner which says the the population bomb is still ticking. And uh. if you if you look at the little picture which says the population bomb is still ticking, the little picture is a picture of a bomb with a fuse burning, not with a clock. And we never caught that until years after publication. Huh. Well, the reason a good I'm rule in publishing is watch your headlines and your symbols. It's all too easy to have a, a mistake in the title that you never that you never notice. Or, well, or on the front picking, cover. Still ticking, still burning. I, I don't think anybody's going to quibble with that. But uh, I, I think no, nobody's I think ever. Book, it's just amusing. That's all. Yeah. I think the book is definitely still worth reading because what what surprised me, as I said, so much of it. I mean, you met you. Met, this is 53 years ago. You mentioned the greenhouse effect. You you talked about Greenland and the Antarctica ice caps and rising sea levels. Uh, well, you know, I, no, I, none of the stuff going on today is a surprise to the scientific community. Uh, we talked about pandemics in it. Uh, in the 1990s, a uh, brilliant colleague of mine, Gretchen Daly, and I wrote an entire article on the uh, effect of global change, including climate change and so on, on the probabilities of pandemics. Uh, we wrote about the uh, problems with the wet markets in China. That was uh, 25 years ago. Uh, Jim Hansen started talking about climate disruption uh, in detail. Uh, in the night in the early 1990s uh, in other words the scientific community has known what's going on for a very long time and unfortunately uh, there's a paper by actually two economists named 
Clamor and Callender, I think, uh, pointing out that economists don't have any training in the natural scientists and natural sciences, so that they can continue uh, with their daydream believing about how you can grow forever. The only thing that's important is money, uh, and uh, on and on. So, uh, you know, the scientific community has been speaking out for decades and. Essentially, the politicians in every country are paying no attention, and they listen to the economists who are utterly clueless about what's going on in the world at the macro level. They, they understand some things and do some interesting things uh, at the micro level, but at the, on issues like uh, global climate change, on issues like the, the costs of externalities and so on, they just don't have any background so they can't understand it. It's like uh, betting your life on what the kindergartners think because their view of what how the world works is maybe not as smart as a kindergarten view, basically. Yeah, politics is not conducive to the long view. In your book, The Population Bomb, you even brought up racism. Environmental justice comes up in a couple of places. You talked about minorities suffering most from the environmental deterioration. And back then, when DDT was still being used, blacks had a higher uh, DT, uh, DDT residues, and Chicanos uh, were, were getting more pesticides. Well, of course, this has been a concern of mine basically forever from before the population bomb. But after the population bomb was published, people began some... There was, of course, lots of racism in the United States, just as there still is. And people would say, well, Ehrlich says there's too many people, so we ought to start getting rid of the, of the blacks or the Chicanos, the, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as a result, uh, I've published a long series. Anne and I have published a long series of refutations of that. Shirley Feldman and I wrote a book that we titled The, the Skin Deep, but got titled by the publisher The Race Bomb, uh, showing what uh, the standard stories about race are just totally nonsensical. And in uh, when I was a graduate student in about 1954, more likely five, uh, I was in Lawrence, Kansas, which was a segregated town. Uh, and as a graduate student at the University of Kansas, and a scientist came to a friend's lab uh, who had been, was Jamaican, and he was dark-skinned. And he came on a Friday to Lawrence and could not get um, a, uh, a meal. He could, they let him into a hotel, but he had to survive the entire time uh, on candy bars that he got from machines because he didn't know the student union would actually have served him. Uh, he was in downtown Lawrence. And so we organized sit-ins to desegregate the restaurants of Lawrence, Kansas. It was quite an interesting experience. It was one of the first times I got my life threatened. Uh, but we managed to get the job done. Uh, although after I left Lawrence, they still had a segregated swimming pool for, uh, I think, five or six years. It's a an, another case of... Uh, uh, interesting politics that I got involved in because 
Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain, who many of your listeners may have heard of, a a fine basketball player who happened to be, I never forget meeting him, he I think was seven feet tall, and I'm not used to people that taller than I am, but uh, they, they were dying to get him to play basketball for the University of Kansas, and Wilt said he wouldn't come if the theaters remained segregated. He wasn't going to sit in the balcony, only in the theater. And so Frank Murphy, who was the chancellor of the university, um, got the the uh, theater owners together, four or five of them, one of whom was Fog Allen, a, uh, a, a terrible racist, but also the basketball coach who was dying to get Wilt to come to, to uh, Kansas. And so Frank said, you know, if we're going to get Wilt, you're going to have to desegregate it. They said, oh, no, we couldn't do that. I said, other customers wouldn't come. We go broke and so on. And so Frank said, well, um, if that's the way it is, um, I'm just going to have to show free movies on campus every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. (laughs) And instant desegregation. (laughs) Desegregation took one nanosecond or something. So um, you, there are ways of getting the right thing done. You also mentioned women and, and how the right of women to have an abortion should be guaranteed, uh, that, that there should be equal pay and opportunities for women. This was, yeah, well, this was, uh, uh, if you want to work to slow down and stop and reverse the eventually population growth and go to population shrinkage, one thing that we know works very well uh, is giving full rights uh, to and opportunities to women, uh, which is something that does not occur in any country in the world today. In other words, women are somewhat behind the eight ball in every country, and of course way behind uh, in countries like the United States where the Trump's war on women was very, very successful. Uh, and very important connected with that and and when you give women full rights that means also full access to modern contraception and when necessary backup abortion and uh, uh, you know the people who are interested in women's rights uh, first of all uh, it's a wonderful thing to work hard on and also they should uh, understand that um, giving women full rights and reproductive rights uh, is something that uh, every government should be involved in uh, to, to see to it that women can make their the right choices. Related to that, uh, and I, I got a uh, you got a fist pump from me on this one. You said there should be a federal law requiring sex sex education in schools, certainly before the junior high level. Well, we're we're a sex soaked society still. And I'm not against sex soaking at all. Uh, what I'm against is uh, people having lots of misinformation so that they don't understand their own sexuality and are not able uh, to make right decisions often. Uh, we have moved somewhat in, in a good direction there that the number of unwanted pregnancies has gone down. Uh, if I, I haven't looked at the statistics lately, but I think it's still uh, going down. Um, but for a society where uh, sex is used to sell everything, sex is everywhere, everybody essentially is interested in sex, uh, why shouldn't people be educated 
uh, about their own sexuality. Uh, it's, again, better than it used to be, uh, but still not where, uh, where it ought to be. Uh, and it's very easy for kids to get confused or, and or abused, uh, just like it's easy for women uh, to get abused because men happen to be physically stronger uh, at least uh, in their, uh, you know, ability to use their muscles, not necessarily in their longevity. But, Absolutely. Um, yeah, we we this the education system is badly broken. Uh, I'm associated with a major university uh, called Stanford University. Uh, it's probably the best university in the country, maybe in the world, and the education here is terrible. It is designed for about 1890. Uh, the curriculum doesn't deal. Uh, ever, if you can get all the way through Stanford without knowing uh, what an ecosystem service is, how large the human population is, uh, why the size of the population makes a difference, what the second law of thermodynamics tells us, like you can't recycle energy and so on, you can find out those things if you take certain courses at Stanford but you can get all the way through Stanford and be as ignorant as a standard economist. Uh, just, just briefly on the, on the sex education in schools, I think we should call it parenting. Call it parenting. Well, and, that, that's uh, a good idea, too. Uh, yeah. Fortunately, human, young human beings are very adaptable so that uh, most of the kids who have problems grow up to be quite reasonable adults. Uh, that's one of the things evolution has done for us because, of course, you can see uh, that people mature into their society successfully You, uh, uh, in general. There are exceptions, uh, and how to deal with those exceptions is a big ethical and policy issue. Uh, now, a good example is the, the battles over uh, what punishment is for it's a, it's a long historical history why do you what do you do with people you consider criminal uh and uh i don't want to get into those debates but it is obviously a very important issue for any large society we are a small group animal we, the human modern human beings have been around for about 300,000 years and for the vast majority of that time uh we were in groups of 50 to 150 people, uh, and that they were quite equitable. Uh, the leadership was not uh, voted on. It was the person with the best talents became the leader in that activity, so that uh, the best hunter became the hunt leader. Uh, the woman who knew the, the medical plants best became the, the medical leader, and so on. And it wasn't until we settled down and started practicing agriculture when our population got so large that hunting and gathering uh, was not, uh, in general, very successful, uh, that the current problems came along because the ag revolution, the agricultural revolution, about 10,000 years ago uh, meant we settled down uh, and could start uh, accumulating property. You couldn't get rich if you were moving all the time. You couldn't carry enough stuff. Uh, and so when we began to get the ability for one family to grow enough food to support more than one family, you get the specialization into warriors, priests, scientists, etc. 
which led to the agri- to the eventually uh, with printing and so on to a, to the industrial revolution, uh, which led to having populations not of 50 or 100 people, but people of 50 million or 100 million, and so on. We are a small group animal, genetically and culturally, trying to live in gigantic groups and not doing a great job of it. Uh, there were a couple of things that had that, that were still on the horizon, or, or didn't even hadn't even occurred when when you wrote this book. Uh, although you do say in the book that reusable containers should be required by law, plastic had not yet become a scourge. Yeah, the uh, one of the sad uses of the fossil fuels, of course, is generating more and more plastic. And plastic can be uh, extremely convenient in some uses and probably should be retained in some uses. But the idea, for example, of taking water, uh, which governments around the world should guarantee, should work to guarantee pure uh, to all their citizens, uh, and bottling it in plastic and then throwing away the plastic bottles, the um, uh, the prediction is that the weight of plastics in the ocean will exceed the weight of fishes around the middle of this century. And as I think you mentioned, but anybody, somebody mentioned that um, in the ocean, the plastics get ground into finer, finer, and finer uh, fragments. They fragments get coated, <coughs> coated with persistent organic pollutants, so-called pops, uh, and are small enough so they enter the food chain and they <clears throat> then enter your body when you eat fish, ocean fishes and so on, and the fragments are small enough to cross the blood-brain barrier. So we're loading our brains with, uh, with poisoned little, tiny little bits of poison-carrying plastic. Uh, and there is a serious discussion now. We know uh, that the toxification of the planet, the toxic chemicals that we create, the novel chemicals and spread everywhere uh, are uh, undoubtedly having serious effects, not just as we know on other animals, but also uh, on human beings. And that's signaled by drops in the sperm count. Uh, It may mean, and nobody knows for sure because it's too tough to test, that human beings are being dumbed down, that human beings are not as intelligent as they were, say, 75 years ago. Uh, like and lead poison. that we don't know. Uh, some people think that explains Trump. Other people think not. It's too controversial. <laughs> and, of course, we haven't yet uh, seen a cross-section of whatever brain he has. <laughs> But lead, lead poisoning uh, did the same thing, and and yeah, sure. there was no ban on there was no ban yet on leaded gasoline when you wrote your book. That's right. There were uh, the amount of change in my uh, life has been absolutely stunning. Uh, for example, I, I was alive the first time somebody fed a catheter into a heart. You know things that are common today. When I joined the faculty at Stanford in 1959, there were no Xerox machines. If you wanted a copy of a scientific paper, you had to put two fluids into a machine. Then 
Uh, it was basically a photographic machine. You put a couple pieces of paper in, you ground it through, then you took them out and hung them to dry, and then kept them in the dark because if you left the copy of the of the article uh, out where light could get to it, it would turn black in a couple of days. Uh, there were no <clears throat> cell phones. Uh, there were no personal computers. The first computer I worked on uh, back in the in the fifties. Um, was the size of a, a huge room uh, and didn't have the power of a uh, of a pocket card computer today. Uh, and uh, you know the, the the changes are just stunning. There was no internet, there was no email, uh, and our ability we our ability to do things, our technological abilities to leave the planet and so on, uh, have increased incredibly whereas our ethical standards and so on have basically not increased uh, yeah. just in some minor ways. But uh, if you uh, philosophers say that uh, ethics today are footnotes on Plato, if, if Plato went huh. into an ethical discussion in a university today and understood the language, he'd be right up to date on most of the issues, whereas... Uh, if Aristotle went into a physics class, uh, he would not have a clue what people were talking about. So we, our culture has increased uh, in a very uneven manner, uh, and our ability to change the planet uh, has far exceeded our ability to think about the meanings of those changes for us, and uh, to say nothing of our other living companions, the only ones we know about in the entire universe. In 1968, they called it eco-pornography. Now it's called greenwashing. Well, uh, you, most corporations like to give you the idea uh, that they are trying to protect the environment. Uh, there are wonderful books by Joel Bacon, B-A-K-A-N. On uh, There's a recent one on basically the greenwashing by corporations. That's all crap. Uh, for-profit corporations care only about the bottom line, and they'll do whatever lying they need to to uh, protect the idea of the bottom line. But basically, again, they all want to grow. Uh, the, the, the big disease of humanity is growth mania, uh, and uh, the corporations and business schools and so on just are machines for growth. Uh, there's a, a great book, I can't remember the name of the author, on uh, closing business schools because, as he said, business schools are a place that trains you to take other mo people's money and put it in your pocket. Uh, but it's worse than that. If business schools actually functioned as people imagine they should, they'd promote growth. Uh, Stanford has a big building for its business school. It doesn't have uh, enough space for the critical uh, things like evolutionary biology that we need to really understand. And every time I've suggested just closing the business school and turning the building over to the biology department, I don't get much of a good reaction from the <laughs> for some reason. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. But the same thing, yeah. we're going to have to get rid of for-profit, limited liability corporations if we're ever going to have a successful 
economic system, and a successful economic system is one that can supply everybody with a reasonable standard of living without deteriorating uh, the kind of standard of living that the children and the grandchildren and so on are going to get. And uh, corporations and business schools are basically devices for preventing uh, that kind of sustainability. Well, too many people uh, also requires uh, agricultural growth, and uh, uh, I, I bet you I should I I did not, and I bet you I don't know. Did you foresee the cutting down of the Amazon for farmland? We we foresaw that the agricultural system, and again, not just us, scientists in general, even today, for example, keep pointing out that we are living on our capital. We are only able to feed uh, the number of people that we have today, inadequate as that uh, feeding is, uh, largely because of of, uh, big problems in distribution, uh, by we're living on the capital of uh, rich fossil, uh, rich soils, which are being gotten rid of at a very high rate, Uh, groundwater, which is being getting, gotten rid of in many areas at a at a rate, the biodiversity that's necessary for the agricultural system for doing things like pollination, which we're getting rid of at a rapid rate. In other words, we're like the uh, the ne'er do well heir to a fortune who uh, got got a large amount of money in the bank and every uh, year writes a bigger check on the amount on the bank and never looks at what's happening to the balance. Uh, We're living on our capital, not on the interest of our capital. We're living on our natural capital. There's a one, maybe the single best environmental program in the world is the Natural Capital Project, which my colleague Gretchen Daly at Stanford runs. And you get NatCap, you can look it up uh, on the web. But its whole idea is to try and preserve natural capital uh, while improving uh, the status of women and the parts of the capital would have to be preserved like the biodiversity. Uh, And it's, again, totally uh, missed by most economists. The, you know, a country can get rich by cutting down its forests. And the idea that that's finite and that it has side effects that can be lethal uh, just doesn't penetrate into uh, departments of economics, which, again, at the macro level, uh, are just clueless. They, you can see this in the total inability of the economic community to predict uh, what's going to happen in the world or in uh, the, the basic general economy to interest rates and, uh, and debt and so on. More than once in your book, you said no growth rate can be sustained in the long run. Yeah, that's right. Uh, here, uh, and uh, people. One of the things, for example, that we saw just in the last year, very dramatically, uh, was that the very simple idea of exponential growth uh, has not penetrated the general education system because. Uh, People would say, oh, my God, only uh, five people have been identified with the SARS-2 virus in this area, and not understanding 
that it is uh, going to grow exponentially and that five people quickly turn into virtually the entire population. Uh, the, the very simple explanations of exponential growth are not taught anywhere in our educational system is obvious from the fact that most of our leaders are clueless about exponential growth. Uh, the, the, the famous story there, which could be taught to every uh, person in grade school, uh, is if you put a, uh, the example that's often used is if you put a, a bit of pond weed into a pond uh, and it is going to uh, double in size every day and fill the pond in a month, uh, how full is the pond on the 30th day, the day before the end of the month? And the answer is it's only half full. Uh, and that's what people can't understand. The, uh, a long history of exponential growth in no way predicts a long future of exponential growth. And we've been in growth that approximates exponential growth in many areas for quite some time. Here's another direct We're about quote. to fill the pond in many ways. Yeah. yeah. Another direct quote from, from your 1968 book. Current rates of population growth guarantee an environmental crisis which will persist until the final collapse. What do you think the final collapse is? Say it again today. Say what? Uh, I mean, after all, we are in the middle of an environmental crisis. Uh, the, uh, we're, for example, well into the sixth mass extinction, something that's only happened five times before uh, on the planet, uh, wiping out the vast majority of the other living creatures we depend upon, and now we're doing it. Uh, the uh, change in the climate is already at the crisis stage that it's barely beginning. Uh, people think there's a crisis on the southern border of the United States because of migrants, but as the climate changes, that's going to be a drop-in-a-bucket type move. The issue that should be being discussed, uh, besides what can we do to uh, gradually, first of all, redistribute resources so that uh, we don't have the division between the ultra-rich and the terribly poor, which drives a lot of the migration. But also, uh, we should ask the question of whether borders are ethical. After all, the resources of the planet are not evenly distributed. Uh, is it right, for example, one of the, the funny lines used by the right is, why, how did our oil get stuck under their sand? Uh, huh. The issue of how resources are distributed and dealt with should be a major uh, issue because, boy, when the migrations really start, uh, then uh, particularly since uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction are easily obtained by almost anybody uh, these days, uh, we're going to be in even deeper trouble. Yeah. The last, the last reference I am going to make to the population bomb is your statement here that the conservation battle is being lost for two powerful reasons. This was 53 years ago. One, nothing undeveloped can long stand in the face of the population explosion. 
And number two, most Americans clearly don't give a damn. Uh, I'm afraid the first is certainly correct. The second, I would say, has changed somewhat since the population bomb in that a very large number of Americans are, uh, in absolute terms, uh, are very concerned about what's happening in the environment. And you can see this in the development of so many environmental NGOs. Uh, you can see it in the mob, M-A-H-B dot Stanford dot E-D-U. The mob, M-A-H-B dot Stanford dot E-D-U, is trying to get civil society focused on the really big existential issues. That is, uh, groups have developed throughout the U.S. and the world trying to uh, get give women rights, uh, get uh, the uh, preserve the pandas, etc., etc., etc. People are very much concerned, but they don't have the educational system that points them at the really major things. In other words, uh, environmental groups sometimes are very focused on recycling, and in some circumstances, recycling can be helpful. But if we recycled everything and continued our patterns of growth, uh, the recycling would delay the end of civilization maybe by as much as 10 hours. Uh, in other words, it's trivial compared to dealing with overall consumption, uh, and which is a factor of how many people there are and on average how much each one consumes. And that the aggregate consumption and the technologies we use to service that consumption are the basic problem, and every environmental group should always make that clear. That is, as long as you're going to keep growing and growing your population and your consumption, you're going to be in deeper and deeper trouble uh, because we've demonstrated very clearly that we have not been able to technologically solve our way out of those problems, and we know theoretically that the continued growth is just impossible. So, uh, yeah, and and one of the things that we're finding is that it seems like every study that comes out, you know, they 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 established a worst case scenario, and then the next study comes out and finds that not only have we already reached the worst case scenario, but now there's even a worst case scenario I, I guess i'm i'm talking mostly about the the uh, melting of uh, greenland and antarctica and sea, sea level rise i for one uh believe that by only by 30 years from now i think by i think by 2050 i i i honestly believe the southern half of florida will no longer exist well the Sea level rise is often a focus because, of course, it's inevitable as you warm the planet, not just from the melting of ice, but from the expansion of water. Uh, But uh, even more threatening, of course, is that agriculture is utterly dependent on the climate, and we're changing the climate rapidly and already affecting uh, our ability to uh, maintain uh, the growth that we need in the feeding base of humanity, which is largely three grasses, maize uh, at the moment, uh, maize and uh, wheat and uh, rice. And uh, there are problems with that in itself. We don't utilize uh, the food sources we could, 
because the ag system is controlled now by big business that has only an interest not in feeding people, but in maximizing profits. We've over-financialized the world, uh, and it's a problem that is so basic it's not clear it can ever be uh, ever be dealt with. But uh, it's very hard to be optimistic these days, as you've already indicated. But there is one thing you can do about it. Uh, there's, uh, if you take grape juice and ferment it very well, uh, you can make things like 1945 Chateau Mouton and so on. And if you drink fermented grape juice enough, it'll keep your internal environment in pretty good shape while the external goes down the drain. So uh, that's a, a cheery news. <laughs> okay. Well, I know you, I know you got to get going. I promised I'd let you get out of here. So uh, Professor Ehrlich has continued his work in this area during the subsequent half century since his book, The Population Bomb. He's written many more books and is currently at work on three more. He's president of the Center for Conservation Biology at Stanford University. Go to the Stanford site to not only follow him, but you can get involved as well. We have a link on the website page of that mob that he mentioned. So uh, thank you so much, Professor Ehrlich, for your time today and for all you have done for so many decades. It's one of my. It's been a great pleasure, and you're doing one of the most important things in the world. That is, trying to. We need. We have a big communication problem, and uh, you're helping to solve it. So thank you very much. I wish you the best, sir. It's been my privilege. Ditto. Once again, I say to you, my listeners, welcome to the Anthropocene era, the future of Mother Nature is now up to humankind. And I apologize for being so verbally aggressive about all of this, but this species really does not seem to have a strong instinct for self-preservation. It seems, in fact, to have very little instinct for self-preservation. So I find I'm not nearly as sorry for the species as I am for all the collateral damage, all the other life forms that we're killing off which is why I'm calling this series of interviews Suicide Earth. We're not just killing us. It's really murder-suicide. <laughs>